I want to take a moment and welcome Northside West to our teaching time this morning. It's exciting what God is doing in you and through you to impact your community and beyond with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am excited to see what God is going to do in this coming year. Now, I've got a confession to make this morning. Back when I was young, I had a short fuse. I had a quick temper. I would get hot real easy. Now, I'm not talking about a child that throws a temper tantrum. I'm talking about a, an adult that would get full-out angry at the drop of a hat. I mean, go into a Hulk-like rage. I, I remember one time, I was in my early 20s. I was pastoring my first church. And we were at a church league softball game of all places. And I don't remember exactly what happened, why it happened, but I remember I was out there on the middle of the field ready to fight several guys from the other team. And if it were not for some cooler heads stepping in and calming things down, I don't know what would have happened. Now, some of us, when we think about the anger of God, when we think about the wrath of God, we look at God that way. We think that God is up in heaven just waiting for us to offend him, waiting for us to upset him, and when we do, we better watch out because he's going to drop the hammer on each and every one of us. I mean, even as I was writing this out this week, I stopped, and I did my devotional reading, and I started reading in the book of Psalms that particular morning. And I read this verse. It says, O oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Then David goes on and he says this. He says, Your arrows have struck me deep and your blows are crushing me. Because of your anger, my whole body is sick. Even David knew. You better not tick God off. But is that what God is like? Is God up in heaven just waiting for us to do something wrong? And when we do, no matter how big it is, no matter how small it is, God's going to let the hammer fall. He's going to open up a can on us, and he's going to whoop us until we say, Okay, God, I'm tired of this. I'm going to do everything you want me to do. Or is God's anger different from that? Could it be that God's anger is an expression of his powerful love for his creation? Now, if you weren't here last week, we began a series on the book of Romans, and we began by looking at the first 17 verses of the book of Romans, and we discovered that Paul was a man that was on a mission to destroy Christianity. But he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, Jesus changed his life. And his mission changed. And his mission from that moment on was to tell the world the good news, the gospel, that God loves us and that Jesus can save us. But what you need to understand is, if there is going to be good news, there has to be some bad news. And the book of Romans begins by telling us the bad news. And the bad news is we are all guilty. 
Romans chapter 3 says the whole world is guilty before God. We have all sinned against God. We have all rebelled against God. We have all rejected God. And because of that, God is angry. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this morning, we're going to finish up the first chapter, looking at verses 18 through 32. And so I want you to open your Bibles, follow along. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen. But we're going to read these verses, and then I want to share with you four truths that Paul teaches us from these verses. So let's begin. Verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. Now, if you underline or circle in your Bible, circle that word suppress, who suppress the truth about their wickedness. They know the truth. Now, underline that phrase, know the truth. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Underline that phrase, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols, made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. Underline that phrase, shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Underline that phrase, vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things they should have never done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Underline that phrase, lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, Deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and they have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet... They encourage others to do them too. So here's truth number one. God reveals himself to all mankind. And because of that, 
because God reveals himself to all mankind, Paul says we are without excuse. No one is going to be able to stand before God one day at the judgment and say, but wait a minute, God, I never knew there was a God. No one ever told me about you. The Bible makes it very clear that no one is going to be able to say that because God has given anyone and God has given everyone undeniable evidence if they will only look and listen. You see, the Bible teaches that God who is both invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable and then in verses 19 and 20 Paul tells us that God has revealed himself to us in two different ways first of all he has given us an internal witness God speaks to our hearts in in verse 19 the Living Bible translates it this way for the truth about God is known to them instinctively God has put this knowledge in their hearts. That's why wherever you go, anywhere in the world, you will find people trying to worship God. The reason is there is a God-shaped void in the soul of every single person that can only be filled by a relationship with God. Anthropologists know this. They have discovered that in every single society, in every part of the world, people worship. They make a God up. They choose gods that they can understand. But everybody has a desire to worship. That's why when we go to Egypt, we find people worshiping. When we go to India, we find people worshiping. When we go to Indonesia, we find people worshiping. When we go to to various parts of Asia, we find people worshiping all over the world. In the jungles, at the height of mountains, people are worshiping because there is this void in our lives that only God can fill. And we try to fill up that void with all kind of things and all types of relationships, but you see, nothing can fill that void but a relationship with God. And the reason is God placed that void void within us and he put a desire in our hearts to know him you see no matter who we are no matter where we were born we were born with a desire to know God C.S. Lewis said it this way he said a baby feels hunger well there is such a thing as food a duckling wants to swim well there is such a thing as water man feels sexual desire well there is such a thing as sex If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. You see, instinctively we know that we were made for more than just to eat, drink, and play. We know that we have a purpose. It's inside of us. We know there is something more. It is inside of us. God placed it in our hearts. God gave us an inward witness. But he also gives us an external witness. God speaks to us from the heavens. Verse 20 says this, From the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly observed in what he made. As a result, people have no excuse. 
all creation shouts at the top of its voice. There is an all-powerful creator who deserves to be worshipped, who deserves to be praised. Now, some of us can say, how does creation give witness to a creator? Well, first of all, the fact that we are here. Think about it. Think about it for just a moment. Everything had to come from something. Something cannot come from nothing without somebody creating the something. If everything came from nothing, then somebody had to make the something because everything can't come from nothing. Somehow, someway in our world, we have convinced ourselves that nobody times nothing equals everything. And i got to tell you, that's intellectual suicide. That's absolutely foolish. If the world began 14 billion years ago with a big bang, where did the matter come from that caused the big bang in the first place? It couldn't have just been here. Where did it come from? For every single cause, there has to be a causer. Who was the one that caused matter to be here in the first place? At some point, there has to be a someone who created the something from which everything came. I mean, even atheists have a problem with this. Richard Dawkins, who is one of the most well-known atheists in his book, God Delusion, admits this is a problem. This is what he says. Listen, this is Richard Dawkins. He says, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology, for ultimate origin. And cosmology is waiting for its Darwin. In other words, he is saying, while we believe that Darwinism explains how life took shape on planet Earth, we have no idea how life ultimately begins. We don't have an answer for that. What he is saying is it's self-evident that nobody times nothing can equal everything. But then Dawkins says this. He says, don't worry, we will find it. Now that's the faith of an atheist. That's faith without God. He says, I don't have an answer how it all began, but we're certain to find it, and it's certainly not God because there can't be a God. And that's just the start. You see, nothing times, or nobody times nothing can't equal everything. But then we look at the design of creation. We live in a designed and an orderly universe. And for there to be a designed and orderly universe, there has to be a designer. There is no way that, that all of this design, this order, came about accidentally. That's like saying the Unabridged Dictionary came about because of an explosion at a printing factory. It's just not going to happen. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. Wherever we look, we see the hand of a master designer. Think about some of the, the amazing facts of creation. The earth is the exact distance that it needs to be from the sun to sustain life. If we were 2% closer to the sun, it would be too hot to live and we would all die. If we were 2% further away from the sun, it would be too cold to live and we would all die. The earth is tilted at the exact axis, 23.5 degrees, that it needs to be for our temperature and our tides to be controlled. 
If we were tilted at any other axis, the world would go into chaos and we would all die. Our atmosphere has just the right amount of oxygen and CO2 to sustain life. If we had a little more oxygen, a little more CO2, we would all die. And Jupiter, scientists have now discovered that Jupiter is the exact size that it needs to be. It is in just the right orbit that it needs to be to protect the Earth. What they say is, if Jupiter were not there, we would be hit by 10,000 times more asteroids and we would all what? Die. It is a miracle that our planet exists. Scientists tell us the odds of a planet like Earth existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it just happened defies common sense. It's like tossing a coin every second and having it come up on heads every time for 10 billion years in a row. It doesn't make sense. And then we put our telescopes away and we pull out the microscopes and we look at DNA. Our DNA that makes up our bodies, DNA is incredibly complex. Francis Collins, who heads up the Human Genome Project, said this. Listen to him. How could a cosmic accident ever result in something of the digital elegance of a DNA strand? That's the scientist that heads up the Human Genome Project. Stephen Hawkins, ever heard that name? The late Stephen Hawkins, an atheist, what we say is one of the most brilliant scientists of, of our age. In his book, A Brief History of Time, this is what he said. He says, the laws of science as we know them at present contain many precise ratios, like the size of the electric charge of the electron and the ratio of the masses of the proton in the electron. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. It seems like someone came along and finally adjusted them. And yet it wasn't God. Wasn't God. You see, it takes an anti-God bias to arrive at any conclusion other than there is an all-powerful God who created us. Whether we look out into space with a telescope, whether we look inside of our bodies with a microscope, we're going to see the evidence that there is an all-powerful God. Now, now, you can determine what that God looks like. You can decide not to believe in the God of the Bible if you want to, but I'm just here to tell you that you are absolutely narrow-minded and closed-minded if you come to the conclusion that there is no God. I love the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson who went out on a camping trip. They were laying down one night and they went to sleep and Holmes woke up in the middle of the night and woke Watson up and he said, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. And Holmes says, what does that tell you? And Watson said, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it tells me we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you? Holmes said, it tells me somebody stole our tent. 
You see, here's the deal. Here's the deal. We look out into space, we look out the earth, we look at our human bodies, and we see the evidence that there is a creator God, unfortunately. And that brings us to point number two. Mankind has rejected the one true God and replaced him with gods we have made. You see, the problem isn't that God hasn't revealed himself. God has. The problem is we have rejected the evidence. Rejected the evidence. Verse 25 says, Instead of believing what they knew was the truth about God, they deliberately chose to believe lies. So they prayed to things God made, but wouldn't obey the blessed God who made these things. Paul tells us the problem isn't that people don't know the truth about God. The problem is we have suppressed the truth. The word suppress means to push down. Suppression is different than ignorance. Suppression means I know the truth, but I don't want the truth to come out. And what God says is each and every person who doesn't know God has suppressed the truth about God. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, when it comes to the knowledge of God, we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. We know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. In other words, we know the truth, but we would rather believe a lie. Well, what Keller is saying is the truth is too uncomfortable. The truth would demand too much change. The truth would, the truth would cause us to have to choose to, to follow and obey God. And we would rather make our own rules. We would rather be able to decide what is right and wrong. We would rather be able to choose our own God. And so we know the truth, but we don't know the truth because we don't want to know the truth. And then Keller explained it like this. He said, suppose a man has a wife and he deeply loves that wife, but that wife dies. And he is left with the son, the only son of this woman that he loves. And this son becomes the apple of his eye. His world revolves around that son. That son is his pride and joy. He would do anything for that son. And so he buys his son the best clothes. He gives him the best food. He gives him the best toys. And when he comes to that time when he's ready to go to school, he sends him to the best of schools. But after about six months, he's called in to meet with the head of the school. And the head of the school says, we have evidence, we have evidence that your son cheats and steals from the other students. Now, the father loves his son, and he doesn't want to believe that about his son, and so he chooses to believe another truth. He believes that the administrator and the teacher and all the other kids at the school have it in for his son. And so he takes his son out of the school and sends his son to another school. But after several months, he's called back in again, and he gets the same report. And he takes his son out of the school and gives him to another school, and he gets the same report over and over and over again. This father, 
He knows the truth, but he doesn't know the truth because he doesn't want to know the truth. And that's what we do with God. We don't like the thought of an all-powerful God ruling over us, so we suppress the truth. We reject God and we replace him with a God that we can control, whether it's ourselves or some other God. And that leads us to the third truth. And that is the result of mankind's rejection is total depravity. And that's what we see in the rest of this chapter. Sins of every kind that affect every area of our life. Now that phrase total depravity is a word that is used in theological circles to mean a variety of things today. Let me give you my definition of total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean everything we ever do is sinful. Total depravity simply means every part of our being from head to toe is infected with sin. So total depravity doesn't mean we aren't capable of doing good things at times. It just means that every part of our being from the top of our head to the tip of our toe has been infected with sin. Let me give you an example you can understand. Suppose there's someone who is this wonderful, incredible cook. And this cook decides to make you some chocolate chip cookies. I love chocolate chip cookies. And so she gets the very best chocolate chips. She gets the most sweet sugar. She uses the best flour. And then she gets her own secret part of the recipe. She goes out into her yard, and she gets a little tiny piece of dog poop and she takes that dog poop and she puts it in the bowl with the flour and with the sugar and the chocolate chips and she blends it all up and mixes it all up so you can't see the dog poop you don't know it's there but it's there and so then she puts it on the pan and she bakes it and man she brings you those chocolate chip cookies and they smell so good oh gosh you love chocolate chip cookies like I do. But before you eat one, she says, I got to tell you, I put in my secret ingredient. You go, really? Can you tell me what it is? And she said, well, I'll tell you. I go out into the yard, and I find just one, just one, not a big one, but a one little piece of dog poop. And I mix it in. That's my secret ingredient. I don't know about you. But I may be able to eat that chocolate chip and never taste that dog poop. I, I may never be able to know it wasn't there. She didn't tell me it was there. But I got to tell you, I'm not eating that chocolate chip cookie. Because it doesn't matter how much dog poop was put in that chocolate chip cookie batter, it affected that entire batter, amen? And you need to understand that we have been totally depraved from the top of our head to the tip of our toes. And then Paul tells us how. He says our minds are dark and confused. Remember what Paul tells us a little bit later in Romans 12? He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why does your mind need to be renewed? Because it is dark and confused. Confused. You've got stinking thinking that has been infected and affected by sin. And 
Paul goes on to say because of that, because our minds are dark and confused, we claim to be wise, but we're utter fools. The word he uses there is the, the Greek word we get our English word moron from. He said, you think you're wise, but you're a bunch of morons. And because you're a bunch of morons, he says you begin to make up gods in your own image and worship them. Your stinking thinking affects your worship. And then he goes on and he says, and your hearts desire shameful things. Now notice the downward spiral of depravity. Our minds become dark and, and then our hearts desire shameful things. It begins in our minds with our thinking and then our hearts are infected. Solomon said the heart is the wellspring of life. Jesus said all wicked things flow from the heart. And then once our hearts are infected and we begin to desire sinful things, our bodies begin to do vile and degrading things. And Paul gives us an example. He talks about sexual immorality here. And he says we exchange the natural for the unnatural. We exchange what is pure for that which is impure. And he, he uses homosexuality as an example here. Now listen to me. Look at me, church. Because I know this is a controversial issue in some churches today. And there are some people in the church that say we need to embrace homosexuality. And there are other people in the church that say, man, this is the worst sin ever. And what I would tell you is the Bible says it's sin. But it's sin, like every sin. And it's unnatural, and it will lead to hell, like all sin will lead to hell. And so what you need to understand is if you struggle with this, is the sin that you struggle with, you need to understand it's sin, and you need to repent of it, and you need to turn from it, confess it to God, and let Him work a work in your life, because the wages of sin is death. But for you that don't struggle with that sin, look at me, church. You sleeping with someone you're not married to? You're just as much a sinner. So get off your high horse. You going home at night turning on your computer and lusting after pornography? You're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. Paul tells us that their bodies began to do vile and degrading things. And then he tells us that our lives become full of every kind of wickedness. And Paul uses, actually in, in the Greek, 21 descriptors here to describe our lives when we remove God. And he tells us sexually, socially, economically, spiritually, relationally, our lives become wicked and evil. Now, if you look at that list, there are things on that list that you're going to go, man, those are bad. And you're going to see things on that list that you're going to say, well, that's not that bad. Amen or oh me? You see, what we have a tendency to do is we look at the sins we don't commit and we like to point those out. And those sins we do commit, we like to excuse them or rename them. Well, like, for instance, let me give you a couple of things Paul mentions here. He talks about greed. Greed. Now, nobody here today is going to say they struggle with greed. I don't struggle with greed. I just want what's mine. 
You see, for you, it's you wanting what you deserve, but for someone else, it's greed. You want a car that's not 10 years old or 15 years old. They want a Lexus. For you, it's not greed. For them, it's greed. How do you define greed? Envy. Well, what somebody else has. Quarreling. Can I get a witness? Gossip. Some of you are going to leave this place today, go to lunch, and you're going to gossip. Backstabbing. That's when you leave this room and you talk about someone else and cut them down. Proud, boastful. Man, we get that on Facebook and Instagram, don't we? Disobeying our parents. Anybody do that? Breaking our promises. You see, some of us would see these things as little things, but Paul tells us that these are signs that we are totally depraved from our head to our toes. And what is bad is we not only do these things, Paul says, but we encourage other people to do them too. Like when we gossip and we go, hey, did you hear the news about? And I mean, we all want to hear the news, right? We're depraved. Top of our head to the tip of our toe. That leads us to the fourth truth, and that is God's reaction to our rejection is abandonment first and then wrath. The Bible says that God abandoned them. God gave them over. That phrase is used multiple times in these verses. The first part of God's judgment is God gives us what we want. We say we want to live a life without God. God says, okay, you got it. We say we want to live our life having sex the way we want to have sex. God says, okay, you got it. We say we want to control our money instead of God. You telling me how to control my money. God says, okay, you've got it. God gives us what we ask for. But then when we get it, we realize it's not what we want. We realize that it leads to suffering. That's what it says here. And we need to understand that our sin ultimately leads to suffering. Some people acknowledge it. Some people try to cover it up. We go out and have sex our way, and it causes us to lose our family. And we go, hey, I'm happy. Yeah. All right. I can live with the venereal disease. Okay. We abuse alcohol when we lose our job. We lose our health, and we go, hey, it's worth it. Yeah, okay, believe that lie. Our sins, because we are totally depraved, leads to suffering. God says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll let you have what you want. But understand, there's consequences to what you want, not just in eternity, but there's consequences right here for your sinful decisions. And then God's second reaction is anger. His wrath is revealed against wickedness and sinfulness. And the word Paul uses here is a word that describes anger that continues to build until finally it expresses itself. Kind of like, remember how the world got more and more wicked until God finally says, I've had enough, and he brought the flood? Remember how... Um, 
God sent the angels to destroy the plains. And, and Abraham said, if I find a hundred righteous men, if I find 50 righteous men, if I find 20 righteous men, remember that? And God said, okay. But he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when God said, I've had enough from Nineveh? And he sent Jonah to warn Nineveh. Nineveh, praise God, repented. But you see, God's anger comes to a point where he says, I've had enough. And he's not some child throwing a temper tantrum. He's not some 20-year-old that has a Hulk-like rage. No, God is very methodical. God says, okay, I've given you what you wanted. Now it's time to experience my judgment. Now the only thing that can make God angry is sin and wickedness. And you need to understand the reason that God hates sin and wickedness so much is because what it does to his creation, you and me. God created us for relationship, but sin destroys that relationship. God created us in his image to be like him, holy, and yet sin removes that holiness. God created us to rule and reign with him, and yet because of our sin, we are slaves to sin. That's why God hates sin. Because of what it does to the love of his life, his creation. And because of sin and wickedness, God's wrath is revealed. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. I don't know how. I don't know why. God still loves us. In spite of our sin and rebellion, God loves us. And God devised a plan. Before he ever even made us, God devised a plan. It's a costly plan. It was a thought-out plan. But for God to create us in such a way that we could have the relationship with him that he so desired, he had to put in us that freedom and he knew that we would. And he knew that when we did, he would have to deal with the sin. So he devised the plan. And the plan was his son would take the wrath of our sin upon himself. His only son. His son would die in our place. His son would absorb the punishment for our sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. You see, that's the good news. Even though we are all guilty, so deserving of death and the righteous anger of God, God has provided a way for us to be forgiven and restored and made right with him. That way is Jesus. He absorbed God's wrath. And I'm here to tell you, look at me. When we come to understand that here and here, we understand it with our mind and we understand it with our heart, it will cause us to fall on our face before God, asking Him to forgive us. 
and rejoicing in the fact that He loves us. And it will cause us to turn from our sin and turn to Him. If you're here and you say, I've given my life to Jesus, but I'm still living in sin. I want, I want the joys of heaven, but I want the pleasures of sin. You've never understood what sin cost. Because to understand it, God's anger being unleashed on sin and that anger being absorbed through Jesus. When you understand that, it'll change you. You'll fall in love with Jesus. You'll give him your life. You want to serve him. You want to follow him for the rest of your life. So have you? Has Jesus changed your life like that? I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to ask you one more time, has Jesus changed your life? Not, have you prayed a prayer? Not, have you been dunked in a pool of water? Not, have you joined a church? Has Jesus changed your life? If he hasn't, and today you understand that you need to give your life to Jesus, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, to pray this prayer to Him with all your heart. Dear God, I humbly come before you this morning acknowledging I am a sinner. I am a rebel. I've rejected you and your authority. Please forgive me. God, I know you love me. You proved it by sending Jesus. Father, I believe Jesus came to this earth. I believe he died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave defeating sin. Father, right now I'm trusting Jesus to save me. Jesus, come into my life. Take control. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. I want to serve you because you love me so much. Thank you for hearing my prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name.